Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how Cain only cared about his punishment and didn't care about departing from the presence of the Lord. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from this week's messages. And Abel, along with the other martyrs, has got one question they keep asking God. How long is it going to be before you avenge our blood? That first blood that hit the ground started a stream of blood that has continued all through history. Why everybody is in hell that's in hell, P-R-I-D-E. It's just pride. And that's Cain. Now here's Tom Cantor as we finish our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Genesis teaching series this week. You know, we have collaborated and got to know a friend, Dr. Chaim Sheraton, and he's the director of nephrology over at New York Queens Hospital. So if you ever end up in New York Queens Hospital and you got a kidney problem, ask for Dr. Sheraton. Anyway, one night at dinner, he told me his story. And it was interesting because he said that, you know, during the Holocaust, he was from Poland, and he was six years old when the Nazis came into his town. And his father, his mother, and him, they went to go desperate to hide. And so a Catholic, a dear Catholic family, took Chaim and his mother, they're going to take those two, into their barn, and another family took his father into their barn. It was very dangerous at that time for Polish people to hide Jewish people. Because what would happen, as did happen in the case of the family that was hiding the father, the Nazis would arrive and they would say, now, if you're hiding any Jews, give them up now because we're going to search and if we find them, we'll shoot you right on the spot. And so they gave up his father and he was shot right on the spot. But this family that his mother and he were hiding with didn't do that. And every day the family was keeping Chaim and his mother, they would carry secretly, hiding, because they were being watched, they were carrying food into the barn, because there's no reason to carry food into a barn, unless you're hiding somebody in there. And they would carry food in there, it was very, very dangerous. Now, where were they in the barn? Chaim and his mother were under the ground in the barn there, It wasn't like there was a big basement. They just had dug out this area and put some old planks of wood on it and hay on the top. And that's where he was with his mother for three years under there. And one day, a group of Nazis came to the barn, and the officer told his men that he'd go search the barn. And he came into the barn alone, the officer did, with his Luger, and he pulled up the planks of wood, and he saw Chaim and his mother down there shaking with fear, And he put the planks back, and he yelled to his men, there's no one in the barn. And he went on, so they were saved. Now, they were kept in this secret hiding place. See, That's the meaning of the words when it talks about heaven being in the secret place of the Most High, or what we saw before. God is keeping, it's a place where you keep a treasure, but it's a secret place, it's a hiding place. And that's the same word that Jonathan used to tell David in 1 Samuel 19.2 when David was in danger of being killed by Jonathan's father Saul. And Jonathan said to him, abide in a secret place and hide thyself. And then Jonathan found out what the intentions of his father were. But that's it. 
It's a secret place. That's the description. It's a secret place, what's called of thy presence, literally in the face of God. It's in the face of God. It's a place where the face of God is. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ meant when he said in Matthew 18, 10, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of the Father of my Father which is in heaven, the face of God. He says it's a pavilion. That word comes from Genesis 31, 17, when Jacob was coming after Esau, and it says, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built him a house and made booths, and that's the word Sukkot, and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. Sukkot, plural Sukkah. Uh, singular, it's booths. It's booths that he built to protect his cattle from the blazing sun in the desert there. That's the word that's described heaven for us. He says the pavilion is the word that's used in the King James, the pavilion. Now, we come to verse 13, and we see here that Cain has a great concern. And his concern is not the same as David's concern. Oh, I'm so concerned, David said, because against thee and thee only have I sinned, and what am I going to do? It wasn't the concern of Joseph at the prospect of sinning against God when Potiphar's wife propositioned him and grabbed a hold of his jacket, and he runs out of the house and leaves his jacket behind, and he's screaming, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There wasn't the concern that he had at all. But what concern he had was about how hard his punishment was going to be. He said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's all he was concerned about. And so once he gets his punishment bearable, he's out of there. And that's verse 16. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now Cain establishes, and this is what we're going to see, a line, and you can call this the line, the seed of Cain, the seed of the devil. He establishes a line that will be characterized by verse 16. This will be a line, an establishment of a line that is without God, that is out from the presence of God. There will be no need for God. No, sir. I'm free from God. And he has a burning passion. And this is what we see in Cain. Cain has a burning passion to prove something. A great experiment Cain wants to go on. Cain is bound and determined to prove he can accomplish without God. He wants to prove he can have a great life without God. He wants to prove he can be very productive. He can be creative and satisfied without God. He wants to prove he can be happy and experience pleasure without God. And so that phrase, he went out from the presence of the Lord, that's like you could hang that as a sign over Cain's house. You know, not as for me and my house we shall serve the Lord, but instead I went out from the presence of the Lord. In other words, without God. And what I just described today is a description of many, many people today. They've had enough of God when they were young, enough of religion, and now they want to embark on a great experience. They've been told to trust and obey, and now they're going to say, I'll prove it wrong. And that's what they're doing. And they're in a great experiment. I went to high school in Switzerland in the mid-60s. I was lost. I was as far away as I came, far away from God as I could be. I had a life without God, a cane life. I returned to the States. 
was saved in 1970 and started a new life with God. And then in 1982, went back to Europe to get business. So I returned to Europe, spent almost sometimes two months a year in Western Europe. And I viewed my being there as being sent by God to bring them the knowledge of salvation and knowledge of God to the Europeans. It's kind of difficult to explain because the difference between the U.S. and Europe when it comes to real heart relationship, knowledge of God, it's kind of like this. When I would tell European businessmen that I was a, a committed follower of the living Lord Jesus Christ, they sincerely, did something that never have happened to me before, they sincerely looked me straight in the eye and they recommended that I must see a therapist. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. But it was very serious. They were dead serious. They weren't joking. And it was so frightful. And I told my wife, you know, I feel like I'm getting frostbite on my soul over here. Because from country to country in Europe, I found people who had embarked for a long time and through many generations on the great experiment. And they had built friendships without God and marriages without God, and families without God, and businesses without God, and cities without God, and cultures without God, and whole countries without God. They had religion. They had religion. I'm not talking about that. And so here goes Cain, starting off the great experiment to do all of that. And that's the direction of the seed of the devil. It's life without God. After all, the devil would reason, hell is a place where God's not there. So let me, let, let's just see how it can be okay. It can be fine. Don't talk about the fire and brimstone part, but we can live fine without God. And so Cain goes out from the presence of God and he begins to build. And when he goes out, as soon as he leaves, he goes and he lives in a land called Nod. The land, Nod is, has a root of meaning wander. Wander, or you could say exile. Is the exile from God. And what does Cain do in his wandering lost state of being in exile from God? Verse 17, he knows his wife, and she conceives and bears Enoch. And Enoch builds a city, calls the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Enoch means uh, devoted, means initiated. There's nothing wrong with the name Enoch. We're going to find another Enoch later on. The only thing is, it's just what are you devoted to? This Enoch we're going to find later on is going to walk with God, but Cain's putting this Enoch to work, and they build their city without God. And then he names the city, not after anything to do with God, but after his son. And so he says, you'd be devoted to building this city without God. And then we see Enoch has a son, Ered. Ered means fugitive. comes similar to the judgment that was placed on Cain. And it brands him with the name of the judgment that was put on him. He says, I don't care about it. We'll just name him whatever we want. Ered has a son named Mahujel. Mahujel means, it could mean struck down or erased by God. And so he's identifying his son as an enemy of God. And then the next one, Mahusel, this could mean like an adult person or an extension of God or as a man who's been made strong by God. And Mahusel begets Lamech, and the, that's not clear what his name means, but he takes to him two wives. The name of the one, verse 19, is Ada, and the name of the other is Zilha. And he begins polygamy. Here we go, starts polygamy. Monogamy was God's design. But here's the first polygamist. He's in the seat of Cain. 
Polygamy in the Bible is never associated with a happy home. If you don't believe it, look carefully into the most dysfunctional family in all of Genesis, the home of Jacob, where we'll come to. Polygamy. You see polygamy, you'll find trouble. I can't imagine any man being so stupid to do something like that. I have enough. Anyway, I don't want to say anything more. But uh, he takes two wives. Ada, and this refers to ornament or decoration. So this is a woman who has a lot of emphasis on her outward fashion, on her ornaments. She was fashionable. Zilla. Zilla means, it comes from shade, and maybe you think of her as a shadowy person. Verse 20, Ada bears Jabal, and he was a father of such as dwell in tents and have cattle. So Jabal means stream or someone who is traveling like a stream. And so here he's traveling around in his tents, and he's a cattleman. And then he has another brother that actually means the same thing, Jubal. But he is the father of all that handle the harp and the organ. So he's also traveling, but he is like a traveling musician. Maybe he's like the Jewish Kletzmer bands in Eastern Europe. He's a traveling musician. And in verse 22, we have Tubal came, and he's the worker of the brass and the iron. So he put those two names together. And so he starts to make swords and spears and weapons. He's a weapons maker. And the sister of, of Tubal came, the only descendant, woman of Cain, the descendant of Cain, is mentioned as Naama. Naama means pleasurable or agreeable, as it could mean beautiful. The only woman, she's outwardly beautiful. So here we have the family of Cain without God. And they're all gathered around here. It's like a big reunion, men of accomplishment and strength, builders of cities. And uh, they kind of look more like America's most wanted list, but... There they are, Enoch, the devoted city builder, and there's Ari, the fugitive, and Mahujel, the raced by God, and Ada, the decorated, fashionable woman, and, the, and Zilha, the shadow woman, and the Jabal, the traveling cattleman, and Jubal, the traveling musician, and then Tubal came, the weapon maker, and Naama, the beautiful woman. And who speaks for the whole group here? Stand up one Lamech, verse 23 to 24. And we end the line here with the spokesman. And he stands up, and he addresses his two wives, Ada and Zilha, and he says, listen to me, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. He's very self-centered. He said, and he brags about killing a man. I have slain a man to my wounding, and not just one man, he says, and a young boy also to my hurt. And then he brags and says, so if Cain... My father, the murderer, he's going to be avenged 70 times. I'll be 77 times. And that's what he's proud about. He's not ashamed of being a murderer. He's proud of it. And he wants everyone to hear about it. He said he's a murderer. And that's the line of Cain. And Adam and Eve are watching all this. And they put their head in their hands. And they say, oi, what did we do? Cain has been successful at establishing this lineage without God. And everything is operating without God. And this is very disturbing. And this disturbs us today, too. And it disturbs us. Why do we see very successful people, even billionaires, seeming to give to every cause that's against God? Why do we see this? People who are so talented, so created, so good business people without God, and promoting causes like they're missionaries, that are anti-God. Why do we see that? And that's very, very disturbing. But we'll pick this up next week as we continue. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being our God. 
Lord, the good news that we've read today, you made a way for us to cross back over the line. Thank you for that. Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would remain uncontaminated and please you, Lord, from the ways of this world we've been reading about. Help us to stand for you, to stand with the simple words, with God. We thank you for hearing us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, following that last teaching you were just showing us, how are we to survive in a world that is so bent on rebelling against God? You talked about billionaires who are missionaries for causes that make God angry. And I know that's the number one thing we're not supposed to do is make God angry. Now, we don't really need to look too far to see how deep the trouble is in our country. What shall we do at this point? Well, that's an understatement is to say trouble in our country. You know, as I've said before, whenever I pray for our country and I, the first thought comes to my mind, well, everybody says, God bless America. And I say, we're way beyond that part of the God blessing America. We're on the God save America at this point. There are so many deep, deep troubles in our country. And this is our country. This is the, the country of our birth, of our heritage that we love, that we care for, that God has put us in, in order to make a difference for him where we live. And so we have to look to the Bible. We have to look to God for direction as to what position we should take. Are we to get out there with placards and and protests? Are we to to go to the gun stores and buy every assault weapon that we can get our hands on? And uh, no, no, no. First of all, let's let's look and realize that there were times like these. And Ezekiel lived in a time like this. And what did God tell Ezekiel? We need the Ezekiel instruction. We need to stand before God and say, oh God, I'm living in a time just like Ezekiel did. Don't forget that they killed Ezekiel, that they sawed Isaiah the prophet in two when they put him inside a log, that they killed all the prophets. So don't think that when they spoke and when they wrote that they were living in a country that was uh, exalting God, they were all also very far from God. So we need the Ezekiel instruction. We open the book of Ezekiel. We go to chapter 3, and we stand there, and we say, oh God, I'm in Ezekiel's position, and this is what God says in Ezekiel 3.18. He says, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet, if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. All right. So what's the first thing God says to us? God says to us, are you living in a world of wickedness? We say, yes, Lord. This is really a country of wickedness, okay? He says, your job is speak. Your job is warn. Your job is to have a vision of life. You, God would say to us, you are not there to be my condemners. The Lord Jesus Christ came not into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You are there to see the world get saved. You are not there to tell them how they're going to hell and and, 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 and so forth, and there's no hope for them. You are there to tell them that they are on their way to hell, but that they don't have to go to hell and that you should say to them, why will you die? 
Because why will you die? Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has died. And so why should you go to hell? Why? Because he has opened the door to heaven for you. So it's very important when it says in Ezekiel 3.18 that you are to warn the wicked man from his wicked way to save his life. That's the goal, to save his life. Our goal is to see the lives of the wicked be saved. We pray for the salvation of our country. We pray for the salvation of our political leaders. We work with all of our heart to see them get saved. We pray for them sincerely that they might be saved. And God says, if you don't do it, I'm going to require his blood to your hand. I don't want anybody's blood on my hands. But he says, if you do it and he doesn't turn, then he says, you've at least delivered your soul. Now, what what are we to warn them? In, in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 11, Paul says this, for we must all, and by the way, that means all, every single one of us, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So what's the subject? The judgment seat of Christ. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great judge of the earth of the world that every that all judgment has been committed to the Lord Jesus Christ he shall divide the spoil with the strong that's what it says in Isaiah 53 he is the great judge every person is going to stand before a judge that has nail prints in his hand that has been crucified that is called also the lamb of god and to stand before that lamb and to be judged by him because a person did not receive him is to be under what is called in the book of Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. And so when, since we know about the judgment that he's going to judge all, because we know about the wrath of the Lamb, therefore, Paul says in verse 11, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. What terror of the Lord? The terror of the Lord of, sta- of falling into the hands of an angry God. That's a terrifying thing. The terror of standing in front of the great judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all the earth, who in his very appearance with the blood still on the fleece of his coat and the nail prints on his hands, speaking and saying, I died for you. You didn't have to come to this place unprotected by my blood. You could have made my soul your offering for sin while you have the chance when you're alive. But now it's appointed. It has been appointed unto you once to die, and you have died, and now comes the judgment. That's terrifying, and that's what the Bible calls the terror of the Lord. Knowing, therefore, knowing that, what do we do? We persuade men. We do whatever it takes. We persuade men. We persuade men. to How do we persuade men? 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, Whatever it takes. That's that's the summary when he says, To the weak I became I as the weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men. That's what he says. That means whatever it takes. For what, Paul? That I might by all means save son save some. That's the goal. I am here to save. And whatever it takes, I will do to persuade. Why? Because I know the terror of the Lord. And and knowing the terror of the Lord, I have heard God say, go out, warn them. That's why Jude 123 says, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. We love to see homosexuals come into the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ. We love the homosexuals, but we hate the sin that they're involved in, and we want to see them saved. With the, even We hate the garment that's spotted by the flesh, but we love their souls because God loves them also and wants to see them saved. And Tom, today you also covered the first Bible genealogy here in Genesis chapter 4. Now, are Bible genealogies supposed to be places where we fall asleep, or how can we make them more interesting? Well, we look at those Bible genealogies for information. For example, we covered today in Genesis 4.22, where it says that Tubal-Cain was an instructor of everybody, every artificer in brass and in iron. You know what that tells us? That tells us that Noah had the advantage of metal tools. That tells us that Noah probably had metal hinges on his ark. That's interesting. We look at the Bible genealogies and we try to recreate those families. We look at what the names mean. We try to think about and put us into their positions, and that just makes them all become the more interesting to us. And I realize that they are long in many of them, but they also do have information for us like we found today. Thank you for joining us today. Now, do you have a Jewish friend or a Jewish person that you have contact with? Maybe they're a coworker, neighbor, a friend, a doctor, lawyer, maybe just someone that you've come into contact with. Would you like to reach them with the gospel? Well, you can do that by getting a Tom Cantor DVD or booklet into their hands. We can make that available to you free of charge if you call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. This is for Jewish people to reach them with the gospel. You can also use this to reach Gentiles as well with the gospel. So call us today, 1-800-247-3051, and get a copy of Tom Cantor's personal life testimony on DVD or booklet so you can reach a lost person, especially a lost Jewish person, with the gospel. Now, we also have a February resource of the month, and that is What is a Jew by Choice versus a Jew by Birth? It's a wonderful DVD presentation. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051, to get this Tom Cantor teaching DVD. Thanks for listening.